Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1115, with a release and air date of Saturday, July 11th, 2020. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community worldwide, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1115 of This Week in Amateur Radio. A maritime mobile service net on HF comes to the aid of a vessel in distress. The Russian-Ukraine radio war is continuing on the HF bands. We will tell you about other HF intruders as well. The QSO Today Virtual Ham Expo announces its full lineup of speakers. We will have the highlights. An amateur in Vermont runs into neighborhood opposition on erecting twin 80-foot towers. The Radio Amateurs of Canada announce free website hosting for RAC-affiliated clubs. A new Solar Cycle 25 forecast runs counter to the consensus. The Long Island Kids CW Radio Club is issued a freshly minted call sign, and we will tell you all about the rebirth of the HF bands. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, will discuss security on your Chromebook computer. Australia's own Arnold Benshop, VK6FLAB, will answer the question, what is a repeater offset and how does it work? Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOI, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill takes a close-up look at the state of amateur radio in the year 1958. Our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will tell you the safest way to work on tower sidearms. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio here in beautiful downtown Albany, New York, I'm George W2XBS. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And reporting from our news bureau in central New York, I'm Chris Perrine, KB2FAF in Cortlandville. And reporting from the Catskill Mountains of upstate New York, where we're bracing our antennas for Tropical Storm Fay. I'm Don Ulick, K2ATJ. And reporting from our news bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where the weatherman tells us the temperature is going to be in the upper hundreds. Huh? Not really, he said, but it's going to be hot. And I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. Melting. 30 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. Leading off our news this week. The Maritime Mobile Service Net on 14.300 MHz came to the assistance of a sailing vessel on June 25th. For more details on this amateur radio-assisted maritime rescue operation, we go to Steve Ford, 
WB8IMY, who files this special report. Net control operator Stephen Carpenter, K9UA, took a call on 20 meters from Ian Cummings, KB4SG, the skipper of the Mystic Lady, some 40 miles east of Florida. Cummings reported that his engine had failed as he was attempting to return to his home port of Stewart, Florida. He not only had insufficient wind, but a strong current was carrying his vessel further out to sea. Cummings had been unable to reach any station via his VHF marine radio since he was too far from the coast. Assisting in the call was Robert Winhoff, K5HUT, also a net control operator. Cummings said his vessel, with one passenger on board, was drifting northwest toward the South Carolina coast. Carpenter contacted Cummings' family, who had already called the Seato Marine Towing Service. Seato advised Carpenter to tell the captain to head closer to shore by sailing west, if possible. Carpenter told Cummings that if he was unable to get nearer to shore, he would notify the U.S. Coast Guard, which was already monitoring the situation. The Mystic Lady was able to make some headway, but it was very slow. Members of the net made additional calls via landline to the captain's family to keep them up to date on the situation. The family was concerned, but relieved the communication was established and that all was well. Several hours later, the captain advised that the wind had picked up, allowing him to head close enough to shore for Seato to reach the vessel and take it back to port. A major concern during the rescue operation was that the vessel was heading directly towards a lee shore the net reported. Lee shores are shallow, dangerous areas which are a hazard to watercraft. Vessels could be pushed into the shallow area by the wind, possibly running aground and breaking up. The Pacific Seafarers Net, which monitors 14.300 MHz from the West Coast after the Maritime Mobile Service Net secures at 0200 UTC, kept in touch with the Mystic Lady into the night while it was under tow. The tired, grateful captain later messaged the net, A million thanks to everyone last night who helped rescue us on 14.300. Everyone shipped in as we drifted north in the Gulf Stream, 60 miles headed to a lee shore. The Maritime Mobile Service Net Control and several others stayed with us for hours, phoned people, and were immensely helpful. The situation on board was dangerous. We are now safely under tow home. You folks are amazing. In operation since 1968, the Maritime Mobile Service Net monitors 14.300 MHz 70 hours a week to assist vessels and others in need of assistance. The June newsletter of the International Amateur Radio Union Region 1 Monitoring System newsletter, entitled Intruder Watch, reports that what's been being called the Russian-Ukrainian radio war continues. The Russian-Ukrainian radio war remained on high escalation levels also in June. IARU Region 1 Coordinator Peter Jost, HB9CET, said, Almost every day we heard the massive, spiteful, and provocative broadcasts. In June, they used more frequencies than before, affecting our bands very hard. It is a great annoyance and a big shame. Jost points out that the IARU monitoring system has little opportunity to stop the on-the-air conflict. Only national authorities can hopefully do something against international complaints, Jost said. It is very important and very helpful that the many other IARU member societies also observe these frequencies and make complaints to their regulators. 
We have to coordinate this well within IARU and act together. This is the only way we have a certain power. In May, Jost reported that the radio war has raged for years at 7055 kilohertz on lower sideband, as well as on 7050 or 7060 kilohertz. Jost also reported continued daily transmissions from the Russian over-the-horizon radar known as container in the 40 and 20 meter amateur bands and elsewhere. The Chinese 5 has been reported on 20 meters from 14.246 to 14.256 kilohertz. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. The first CUSO today, Virtual Ham Expo Saturday and Sunday, August 8th and 9th, has confirmed what it's called a packed lineup of over 70 great speakers for the ARRL-sanctioned event. For more details on what looks to be an exciting Virtual Ham Fest, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, reporting from League Headquarters in Newington. Attendance is free and registration is open at www.qsotodayhamexpo, that's one word, dot com. Presentations will cover a range of topics with two tracks focused on providing hands-on, practical advice for those just getting started in amateur radio. Steve Johnson, WD8DAS, will demonstrate basic soldering techniques for repairing equipment and building projects. Marcel Stieber, AI6MS, will offer an overview of common battery types, discussing the pros and cons of each, including battery chemistry, common uses and misuses, and everyday application tips. For experienced operators, the topics will cover new techniques, equipment upgrading, 3D printing, and more. Glenn Johnson, W0GJ, will attempt to answer the question, Is 3DB worth a divorce? and cover a wide range of antenna topics. Jim Veach, WA2EUJ, will explain how to build a QRP radio. In his presentation, The Slot Antenna, Undiscovered Country for Most Hams, John Portoon, W6NBC, will demonstrate how a satellite TV dish antenna can be slotted to make an effective, stealthy outdoor 2-meter or UHF antenna. Youth educator Carol Perry, WB2MGP, will moderate a lineup featuring Amateur Radio's future leaders. Audrey McElroy, KM4BUN, will speak on getting girls involved in STEM, specifically Amateur Radio, while hot air ballooning will be the focus of a talk by Jack McElroy, KM4ZIA. QSO Today's Eric Guth, 4Z1UG, says that one challenge to any ham radio convention, whether in person or virtual, is keeping the content of presentations from becoming overly complicated. For our inaugural virtual expo, we've made sure that there are great speakers for both beginners and experienced hams. We've also asked all of our speakers to be laser-focused on their topics while providing hands-on practical advice, said Guth. Each presentation will wrap up with a live question-and-answer session. For more information or to register, visit the QSO Today Virtual Ham Expo website. Attendance is free, and therefore there are early bird prizes incentives 
for registering by July 24. Radio interference of a different sort is challenging the plans of one amateur radio operator in Vermont who has plans for two towers on his property. Neighbors of Zachary Mangianello, K1ZK, say the two 84-foot towers he wants to build on his property in Dorset, Vermont, are just too much. They are challenging his application, saying the towers will ruin their panoramic view of the mountains and affect the character of the area. Some neighbors have stated they are afraid that the electromagnetic signals will have a bad effect on their health. Zachary, a ham since 1994 when he was 14 years old, is also the trustee for the Black Mountain Radio Group, W1JXN, according to his profile on QRZ.com. He is awaiting the results of a balloon test being conducted by an engineering firm to simulate how the towers would look and impact his neighbor's views. Zachary has told local officials he would consider a modified proposal to address neighbor's concerns. He and his attorney, Brian Sullivan, say, however, that federal and state exemptions for ham radio towers supersede any height limitations set by local laws. The Radio Amateurs of Canada is pleased to announce it is now offering a new benefit to our affiliated clubs. The ability to host your club's website on the Radio Amateurs of Canada server. And, depending on how you choose to set up your domain, in some cases, there will be no cost for this new service. Radio Amateurs of Canada runs our IT services using OVH Cloud, a Montreal-based internet service provider that offers affordable, high-performance, dedicated servers and a wide range of cloud-based services. The Radio Amateurs of Canada's new web hosting service will include the following. 400 megabytes of storage space, unlimited email aliases, two MySQL databases, a free SSL certificate. It will also include a website builder program powered by SitePad for those who have limited coding experience or who want to use the built-in, easy-to-use drop-and-drag tools and templates to design their sites. You can try a sample demo at sitepad.com demo. For clubs that do not want to pay the extra cost to have their own domain name, clubname.ca for example, Radio Amateurs of Canada now provides the opportunity to show your affiliation with RAC using MyARC in your domain name, clubnamemyrac.ca, and at no cost. Already have a domain? You can transfer your current domain name over to the RAC domain name service for $20 a year for a .ca slash .com to cover extending your registration. Radio Amateurs of Canada is a volunteer-based organization and does not have dedicated staff to provide any site support, so it is important that you have someone who has some basic coding experience and is familiar with website functions to administer the site. If you choose to take advantage of this new web hosting benefit, RAC will be happy to set up the initial hosting requirements and provide you with the necessary administrator credentials. But it will be up to your club to create your own site using the SitePad tools provided or to transfer an existing site using the FTP and cPanel administration interface. If you have any questions about the new web hosting service, please contact Jeff Dale, VA3ISP, 
RAC System Administrator at sysadmin at rac.ca. The Intrepid DX Group, a U.S.-based IRS 501c3 nonprofit organization that promotes amateur radio in developing countries, has announced its first youth essay contest. The prize is a new ICOM IC7300 transceiver, which the winner must agree to keep and use for one year. Participants will prepare a two-page essay answering these questions. What are your amateur radio goals? And what can we do to attract more youth to amateur radio? The competition is open to U.S. amateur radio licensees age 19 or younger. Submit essays in text or Microsoft Word format attachments by email to intrepiddxgroup, that's one word, at gmail.com by July 31st, 2020, or by postal mail to the Intrepid DX Group, 3052 Wetmore Drive, San Jose, California, 95148, postmarked by July 31st. The winner will be announced on August 10th at the Intrepid DX Group website and on its Facebook page. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. Scientists associated with the National Center for Atmospheric Research, the University of Maryland, NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, and other institutions are offering a bold prediction on how Solar Cycle 25 will play out. In a paper entitled Overlapping Magnetic Activity Cycles and the Sunspot Number, forecasting Sunspot Cycle 25 amplitude, they assert that the next sunspot cycle will be of a major proportion. The forecast stands in stark contrast to the consensus of forecasters who predict that the magnitude of the nascent cycle 25 may not be much different from the current unremarkable solar cycle, which appears to have reached its low point. From the dawn of modern observational astronomy, sunspots have presented a challenge to understanding. Their quasi-periodic variation in number, first noted 160 years ago, stimulates community-wide interest to this day. A large number of techniques are able to explain the temporal landmarks, geometric shape, and amplitude of sunspot cycles. However, forecasting these features accurately in advance remains elusive. The paper notes that recent studies have illustrated a relationship between the sun's 22-year Hale magnetic cycle and the production of sunspot cycle landmarks and patterns, but not the amplitude of the cycle. Using discrete Hilbert transforms on 270 years of monthly sunspot numbers to robustly identify the so-called termination events, landmarks marking the start and end of sunspot and magnetic activity cycles, we can extract a relationship between the temporal spacing of terminators and the magnitude of sunspot cycles, the abstract explains. Given this relationship and our prediction of terminator events in 2020, we deduce that the sunspot cycle 25 will have a magnitude that rivals the top few since records began. 
This outcome would be in stark contrast to the community consensus estimate of Sunspot Cycle 25's magnitude. According to the paper, low-amplitude solar cycles appear to correspond with widely separated terminators, while larger amplitude cycles correspond to more narrowly separated terminators. Our best estimate for the sunspot number amplitude of solar cycle 25 is 233 spots with a 68% confidence that the amplitude will fall between 204 and 254 spots, the paper posits. We predict with 95% confidence that the cycle 25 amplitude will fall between 153 and 305 spots. The researchers concede that their forecast is outside of the scientific consensus based on different paradigms. Over the coming months, as Solar Cycle 25 matures, it will become evident which of these paradigms is most relevant, the paper says. Very early indications of the spot patterns are appearing at higher than average latitudes. Historically, high-latitude spot emergence has been associated with the development of large-amplitude sunspot cycles. Only time will tell. Parking lots may be replacing community centers, schools, and clubhouses as convenient locations to conduct amateur radio examination sessions. On June 20th, the Mike and Key Amateur Radio Club in Washington took over a Boeing parking lot to administer tests under the AWRL Volunteer Examination Coordinator, Volunteer Examiner Scott Robinson, AG7T, and he said his team has been unable to administer exam sessions since early March. Based upon King County and Washington State guidance, we thought we could give an outdoor session using one of Boeing's parking lots in Renton, Robinson told ARRL. That required a lot of work to organize. Robinson said the team developed a mitigation plan that detailed how the examiners would address several major areas. These included health screening of VEs and exam candidates, social distancing in all aspects of the session, sanitation in setting up the test area, and in session processes. With those details agreed to, an information document was produced for the examinees that listed a set of requirements that each of them needed to meet. For example, no carpooling to the session. Each examinee who agreed to the requirements was then registered for the session. Candidates had to register in advance via email, at which time they would receive directions to the exam session and requirements. A custom set of test booklets was produced for single use and then disposed of. They used plastic sheet protectors to ensure minimal handling of examinees and by the VEs. Robinson explained that these were also thrown away. Examinees parked in every other parking space facing the VE area in the center of the lot. This allowed the VEs to supervise those who took the exams by looking through car windows. We had 24 examinees at the sessions and gave 29 exams, leading to 14 technicians, 7 generals, and 2 amateur extras, Robinson said, noting that the additional 10 candidates we're on the waiting list, and we're going to try and do the same thing again on the third Saturday in July. ARRL Central Division Director Kermit Carlson, W9XA, points out that a new Indiana hands-free driving law carves out an exception for ham radio mobile operation. The hands-free law applies to electronic communications devices, which includes cell phones, tablets, and smart watches. A Q&A on the law explains. Amateur radio, two-way radio, and citizens' band may be used under the hands-free law, but drivers are required to do so in a safe manner. The Q&A notes that holding a smartphone or tablet while driving is a significant factor in crashes caused by distracted driving. 
The ARRL has announced that Orlando Hamcation will host the 2021 ARRL National Convention in Orlando, Florida, February 11th through the 14th. With more details on the upcoming National Convention, we go to League Headquarters, where Steve Ford, WB8IMY, files this report. The convention will mark the 75th anniversary of Hamcation, one of the largest ham radio gatherings. The convention theme, Rediscover Radio, is a rallying call for radio amateurs committed to developing knowledge and skills in radio technology and radio communication. The convention will kick off on Thursday, February the 11th, with a series of day-long ARRL training tracks and a convention luncheon at the Doubletree by Hilton Hotel Orlando at SeaWorld. A complete program and list of presenters will be available later this summer, and registration will open in the fall. Hamcation will host the rest of the convention Friday through Sunday, February 12th through 14th, at the Central Florida Fairgrounds and Expo Park in Orlando. Pacificon 2020 has been canceled. Held each October, the event is sponsored by the Mount Diablo Amateur Radio Club and hosts the ARRL Pacific Division Convention. Pacificon Treasurer Jim Simons, W6LK, said, quote, The Pacificon Committee has been hard at work planning Pacificon 2020 each and every day, but COVID-19 really has made the event untenable. We are looking at options to provide some content for the amateur radio community via the web or virtual seminars, unquote. Amcation is sponsored by the Orlando Amateur Radio Club, an ARRL-affiliated club. Orlando Amateur Radio Club is supported by volunteers from radio clubs throughout the region. This year, an estimated 24,000 people attended the all three days of the event. Details on tickets and information about forums, exhibits, including information for vendors and tailgaters, testing, travel, and preferred hotels with special rates are all on the Hamcation website. Online ticket sales will begin in August. Tickets purchased and postmarks by December 1, 2020 will cost $15 and are valid for all three days. ARRL and Hamcation acknowledges this year's pandemic has introduced uncertainty into any long-term planning. Both organizations will follow all government and health requirements and guidelines as plans are committed for the 2021 event. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Hey everybody, it's Leo Laporte, your tech guy. This week, we're going to talk about Chromebook security. Stay tuned. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Well, I'm not sure why it comes with WebRoot. It's not that Chromebooks are completely impervious to attack, uh, but the attacks are very rare and the fix is very easy. So... I, you know, in general, I don't recommend installing antiviruses anywhere. Most systems come with antivirus. Windows 10, uh, Mac OS have their own security systems, and they're more than adequate. The problem I have in general with antiviruses, and actually WebRoot's a pretty good one, 
But in general, the problem is, in order to work an antivirus, has to put its hooks deep into your system, right? They have to be able to monitor, you know, low-level uh, activities, the kinds of things hackers are going to do. So they really need to dig deep. And that means if there's anything wrong with the security software, any flaws in the security software, they're just opening a door for bad guys to get into your system. And believe me, this happens all the time. So that's problem number number one. Problem number two, no antivirus is 100% effective. Most of them not even 50% effective. That means half of all the viruses you run into are going to go right through the antivirus. They may not even be slowed down. So it gives you a false sense of confidence. Oh, I've got an antivirus. I don't have to think about that stuff. You still have to think about that stuff. It's just kind of like... Um, it's a little bit of protection. It's not everything you need. And in most cases, I don't think it's worth the security risk. You know, it also slows down your system. It eats up system resources. Often, security software causes problems with getting online, problems with loading websites, and, and they're kind of mysterious. All of these problems are not compensated for by the fact that the virus is protecting you because it's not. It's just protecting you a little. So I don't recommend an antivirus, and I really don't think you need WebRoot or any antivirus on your Chromebook. I will talk a little bit, though, about Chromebook security, because it's important to know. As with any computing device, security really is on you. At the bottom line is it's your behavior you you know that makes a system insecure. Chrome OS itself inherently is really secure. It's Linux, but it's Linux that's been very carefully crafted by uh, Google to be very strong against attack. For instance, no malware can monitor, modify your firmware. It's got security boot checks. So when you first boot up, it checks to make sure that its firmware is, is intact, is unchanged. That's great. It has all sorts of things to protect you in that regard. Plus, it's so stripped down. It does so little, really. It's just a Chrome browser. Uh, that uh, it'd be pretty hard to attack it. You'd have to get in through a very limited set of capabilities. But it is an Internet device, so any device that goes on the Internet is exposed to attack. I just think it, there are very few attacks against Chromebooks. There are a couple of ways malware can get on your Chromebook. One is with, with, a, with a Google Chrome extension, and there are malicious Chrome extensions. So I'd be very careful about which extensions you install. Of course, you're going to install more on a Chromebook because that's the only kind of software you can run. So, But I would be a little careful. Make sure that that extension is safe, has been vetted by Google, and, uh, and isn't doing anything bad. The bigger risk is the fact that many Chromebooks now run Android programs. And as we know, there are a lot of bad programs in the uh, Google Play Store. They're removed all the time. Google checks them all the time. But, but they get in anyway. The good news is... On a Chromebook, when Android apps are running, they're running in a sandbox. That means they have very limited access to the operating system. They're essentially running in an emulator. And it's a very limited subset of apps that you can actually run on a Chromebook. So, again, anytime you're installing software on any device, it's really important to consider the source and make sure it's something you completely trust. That's true on Windows. It's true on Mac. It's true on your phone. And it's certainly true on a Chromebook. Careful where you get software from. But in general... Chromebooks are a are hundred times safer than any general purpose operating system or device. Finally, it's important to understand how the Chromebook is to be used. And I'll explain why in a second. 
you'll notice there is a hard drive in your Chromebook, but it's usually a lot smaller than a typical laptop. 64 gigabytes, maybe 128 gigabytes. I have to laugh. As an old timer, that sounds like an awful lot of storage, but it's small for current computers. The reason is you're not really expected to save anything on your hard drive. You're expected to save it all on Google Drive in the cloud. And there's a good reason for that. You don't want to be dependent on this particular hardware. You want to be able to log in on any Chromebook with your Google account and be ready to go because everything's in the cloud. You have access to everything. All your settings are installed. It's really important. So inevitably screenshots especially but some other things maybe get saved to your physical disk inside your chromebook it's a good idea to do as little as possible and then back it up occasionally because remember any hard drive has to be backed up move it to google drive or put a usb key in here and copy it to that you can do that with a chromebook this is not the chromebook goal that's the newest chromebook this is its older uh, big brother the chrome pixel book which i really like i mean this is a really nice laptop and all Chromebooks have a feature that is the ultimate death to malware. It's called Power Wash. You can reset your Chromebook back to the factory specs very easily. And the reason I recommend not storing a lot on your Chromebook is you want to be able to power wash this, wipe everything, start completely fresh, and be ready to go. So if you do have anything on your hard drive before you power wash, make sure you back that up. And then... You can easily power wash by logging out. You can't be logged into your account at the time. And now this is going to depend on which Chromebook you're using. Uh, but once you once you sign out, here I'll show you. So once I click sign out, it's going to go to the initial login screen. And then I can press command shift alt. I think it's command shift alt r. You can look this up. But I think on the uh, Pixel Book and probably on your on your Go, it's Command Alt Shift R. That's the you know reset. Actually, it's restarting right now, installing a new software. That's another beautiful thing about the Chromebook. It automatically, when you reboot it, installs the latest version of Chrome OS. It's ready to go. Here we go. Let's do it. Control Alt. It's a lot of keys. A lot of keys to push here. Control Alt Shift and R. And now it's going to say, reset this Chrome device. It's called power washing. I love that name. But it's really a complete reset. So when I power wash this and revert, it won't take too long. But remember, all user accounts and local data, data stored internally, will be removed. What will also be removed? Any malware, any exploits, any bad guys that are on your system. This is so easy to do on a Chromebook that I feel like this is the safest tool. This is the this is the tool I recommend to almost everybody if they don't want to be security experts, if they don't want to have to worry about configuration details, if they don't want to become geeks, they just want to surf the net, get their email, do some online shopping, and they want to do it safely. That's why I love the Chromebooks. It's really perfect for that. And now, in just a few minutes, that is reset. All I have to do now is log in. First, I'm going to get online. So let me let me type in our online. See, I forgot everything, even the passwords. So I'm going to log into our internet uh, Wi-Fi here, answer a few uh, questions. It's going to make sure it's got the latest software. I love this. Uh, installed on it. 
And now I merely need to sign in. This is the same thing you did when you first got your Chromebook. You sign into your Google account. And if you've done it right, in other words, you've used Google Drive, you've used Google Docs, if you've stored most of your data up in the cloud, this, this Chromebook's going to come back fresh, clean, washed, and with all your data, all your extensions, everything you installed, good to go. Fresh as new. So it has two advantages. One, you can use any Chromebook and log in as yourself. It will become your Chromebook. And if you ever have trouble with a Chromebook, particularly if you ever have trouble with malware, it's a simple thing to rewash. So, no, you really shouldn't <laughs> install Webroot uh, on your Chromebook. You don't need it. It's not going to protect you. And the Chromebook is already about the most secure computing device you can buy. It's better than iOS. It's better than Android. It's better than Mac or PC. And it's why I recommend it. And you see, I didn't mind doing the power wash on this. This is my Pixelbook because I know it's going to set it up and be exactly as it was just 10 minutes ago, minus any bad stuff that might have gotten on there. It's pretty hard to get bad stuff on. And it's one of the many reasons I often recommend Chromebooks, especially to people who just don't want to become security experts. They just want to use their device. Now, I love this because now it's completely, it's not only, it, it by the way, it updated too. <laughs> it's the latest version. How do you like that? I mean, there really is a lot to be said. So that's why I love Power Wash. I am now set. This is everything I had on it before. All my uh, all my uh, extensions, everything already installed. You, you can't beat that. Power Wash is a really great idea. I wish more operating systems offered that. Just fantastic. Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk high-tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. If there was a buzzword to describe amateur radio in the first three months of 1958, it was satellite. The Russians had launched Sputnik in November of 1957. Thousands of hams tuned in the weak beacon from the satellite on 20 and 40 megacycles. Amateur radio received a lot of publicity as across the nation, many local papers ran articles on the hometown hams and the signals from space. Many amateur operators also were busy building converters for 108 megacycles as the new U.S. Army Signal Engineering Labs in Fort Mammoth, New Jersey had a 50-kilowatt transmitter on that frequency to bounce signals off the moon. The antenna was a 60-foot dish. Those lucky enough to hear it received a special QSL. Also on 108 megacycles was the first U.S. satellite, Explorer, launched in February 1958. Hundreds of reports were received by the ARRL from those who heard it. Amateur radio was growing in 1958. The total number of hams was over 160,000, with predictions that we would go over 200,000 by 1960. 
ARRL membership was also at its highest level, 60,000. In fact, there were so many hams, the FCC was running out of call signs. The traditional 1x3 calls beginning with W or K were almost completely used up, especially in the second and sixth call areas. To alleviate the problem, the FCC began the 2x3 format. Henceforth, new technician, general, and extra class call signs would begin with WA, while novices would get WV. The large growth in the number of licenses was partially due to the popularity of the novice and technician class. Novices had 50 kilocycles on both 80 and 40 meters, a full 150 kilocycles on 15, and voice privileges on the 145 through 147 megacycle portion of 2 meters. The technician class license, which had started out with only 220 megacycles and above, had been given 6 meters in 1955. With the sunspots at their highest peak in 1958, thousands of novices and technicians were on 15 and 6, working worldwide DX and getting WAC, WAS, and even DXCC awards. This upset some higher class licensees, some of whom demanded a reduction in the number of frequencies available to the novice and technician. No frequencies were taken away. However, the ARRL went on record as being against giving technicians any two-meter privileges. It wasn't until the 1970s that technicians would finally get the full two-meter band. Early in the year, the ARRL filed a strong opposition to a proposal to remove amateurs from the 11-meter band and establish a citizen's radio service there. Granted, the band was lightly used by hams, it wasn't a worldwide allocation, and there was interference from industrial, scientific, and medical devices on 27.12 megacycles. Still, it was our band, and the ARRL made a good argument for keeping it. The FCC was expected to make a decision by the summer. In technical developments, slow scan TV was first described in the August 1958 issue of QST. Transistors were coming out of the purely experimental stage and were starting to show up in practical circuits. There were several all-transistor power supply and modulator projects, and even a transistorized 10-meter walkie-talkie. Mandatory in any 1958 amateur base station was a broadcast band receiver. Why? In a word, Conalrad. Conalrad was the predecessor to the emergency broadcast system. It used key stations which would broadcast emergency messages on 640 or 1240 kilocycles. Every amateur station had a monitor 640 or 1240 kilocycles while on the air. Mobile operators in contact with a base station did not have to monitor Conalrad. Speaking of mobile, do you want to try it? Just remember the simple 1958 FCC rules. Quote, Notices are required to the FCC engineer in charge of the districts wherein the mobile or portable operation is contemplated when such operation shall be in excess of 48 hours without return to the home address. Also, please remember to include the portable location or mobile itinerary, the dates of the beginning and end of each period of operation away from home, and the registry or license number of the vessel, vehicle, or aircraft from which mobile operation is to occur. Unquote. Got that? 
If you still want to try mobile, then consider the new Collins KWM1 mobile transceiver. It's a 175-watt input sideband CW rig which covers the 20, 15, 11, and 10-meter bands. You can get it for only $695. Let's take a look at the other 1958 rigs out there. Halicrafters had several receivers, the SX99 at $150, the SX100 for $295, and the SX101 at $395. On the transmitter side, there was the HT32, a 144-watt input AM sideband CW unit which covered the 80, 40, 20, 15, 11, and 10-meter bands for $675. Johnson Viking transmitters ranged in price from $55 for a basic CW kit to $950 for a 600-watt sideband AM CW assembled unit. You can choose a good companion receiver from Hammerland from the HQ100 $170 to the HQ150 $294 to the all-new HQ160 $379. For VHF operators, the Gonset Communicator 3, an AM rig for 6 or 2 meters, was introduced at $270. It was civil defense approved, of course. Clegg had the model 62T10, a 2, 6, and 10 meter transmitter. On the budget side, perfect for the novice, was the new National NC60 general coverage receiver for $60. Heathkit, of course, had some excellent bargains from the DX20 CW rig for $35 to the DX40, a 75-watt AM CW rig for 80 through 10 meters, including 11 meters, at $65 to a general coverage receiver for only $30. All of the above were kits, of course. How many Radio Shack stores were there in 1958? Two, Boston, Massachusetts and New Haven, Connecticut. Radio Shack had a six-transistor portable radio for only $29.95, which was perfect for monitoring Conrad. But the big news in 1958 came from Collins. Late in the year, they introduced the S-line of equipment. Collins took out glorious, exquisite, multi-page, full-color ads in QST to show off the 32S1 transmitter, the 75S1 receiver, and the 30S1 linear amplifier. A new standard had been set in amateur radio, and sideband was here to stay. On September 11, 1958, the FCC came to a decision. Our 11-meter band would be removed from us and turned over to the new Class C and Class D Citizens Band. A new concept was developing, that access to the airwaves should be made available to individuals for non-technical, non-hobby personal communications. It was the dawn of a new era. In our next installment, we'll look at amateur radio in the early 1960s. I hope you will join me. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts.
This is the ARRL Propagation Forecast for Friday, July 10th. We have a quiet sun on tap for the IARU World Championship Contest this weekend. Some geomagnetic disturbances could disrupt the upper HF bands by Sunday, but those effects should be mild and short-lived. On VHF and UHF, watch for tropo openings along the entire California coast and in southeast Wisconsin and Michigan during the next several days. And now with this week's satellite update, here's Bruce Page, KK5DO. Just a quick note, it is always important to keep your TQSL files up to date. The ARRL just released an update, which includes one of the newer satellites, TO-108, which was CAS-6 prior to receiving its AMSAT designation. There were several distance records recently set on TO-108, Jerome F4DXV, and Vladimir R9LR worked each other at a distance of 4,458 kilometers on June 28th. Over on CAS-4A, Allen TR-8CA, and Philippe, EA-4NF, set a distance record on June 27th of 4,636 kilometers. You can find a list of those that are going to be roving and the grids they will be in by visiting amsat.org, click on Satellite Info, and then Upcoming Satellite Operations. Some of those operators are working towards a reverse VUCC, where you work from 100 different grids, while giving those that are working towards increasing their grid count another grid. This is Bruce Page, KK5DO. The ARRL has invited applications for the position of awards and programs assistant at League Headquarters in Newington, Connecticut. This is a full-time, non-exempt opening in the Radio, Sport, and Field Services Department. The pay range is from $16.08 to $19.30 per hour. The awards and programs assistant is charged with assisting with all radio, sport, and field service department activities with an initial priority on Logbook of the World support. Other duties may involve supporting DXCC and other awards programs, W1AW operations, and contest programs and field service support. This individual also may be assigned special projects and would represent ARRL in public forums worldwide. The successful candidate should have a well-rounded knowledge of amateur radio, an amateur extra-class license, and two years of operating experience, the ability to quickly understand and explain software functionality, and proficiency in keyboarding and data entry. This individual should have attained DXCC, regularly submit contest logs to sponsors, use Logbook of the World, and be able to resolve issues efficiently. A bachelor's degree is preferred, the ideal candidate will have excellent interpersonal, telephone, and listening skills and be proficient in public presentations. Some overnight travel may be required. To apply, submit a cover letter and resume via mail, email, or fax to ARRL. Care of Monique Levescu, 225 Main Street, Newington, Connecticut, 0611. For complete position information, visit the ARRL Employment Opportunities and scroll down to Awards and Program Assistance. The plan to switch fully to digital radio from analog is getting a reprieve in the United Kingdom. If you live in the UK and you were planning to get rid of your AM and FM radios, think again. Regulators have announced that the planned switchover from analog to digital will be delayed until 2032. The original plan would have scrapped the analog broadcasts available on older receiving devices 
in favor of digital signals. Instead of the commercial analog licenses expiring in 2022, Ofcom will renew them for another decade on condition that the licensee also provide digital service. This delay marks the latest slowdown in the UK's fight to all digital commercial broadcasting. It's estimated that 60% of radio listeners have made the leap to digital in the UK, but Ofcom recognizes there remains a strong loyal group of listeners to traditional AM and FM signals. The rules do not apply to BBC radio stations, however. Media Minister John Whittingdale told the Daily Mail that despite this accommodation of AM and FM listeners, there was still a long-term commitment to the continued growth of digital radio. Produced by amateurs for amateurs and originating from Albany, New York, you're listening to This Week in Amateur Radio. If you are on the HFCW bands, you may hear a brand new call sign. K2LCW was granted recently to the Kids Long Island CW Club. The club's young members have been learning Morse code from the Long Island CW Club in New York and especially welcome activity during the long quarantine. The Long Island CW Club, also known as W2LCW, is the proud sponsor. And according to instructor Rob K2MZ, they are now in search of a suitable logo for the new kids club. According to the Long Island CW Club website, since their launch earlier this year, the kids' classes have attracted students from 31 U.S. states and four countries. They say every cloud has a silver lining. It's hard to find a positive among all the bad news about the current pandemic, but it has pushed more conferences and events to allow online participation, either live or after the fact. A case in point, the Software Defined Radio Academy's annual event is an all-on-YouTube channel that you can attend virtually. Not all the videos are out there yet, but the keynote, along with some very technical talks about techniques ranging from FPGAs to spectral monitoring and spectral correlation density. There are some older videos on the channel too, including some GNU radio material. We hear some of the upcoming videos will have some new GNU radio content too, including some on the GNU radio implementation for Android. It's remarkable how software-defined radio has transformed from an exotic technology to the commonplace. If you like these tech-heavy presentations, you might also enjoy this free book. No matter what you want, if you want to pick up cheap SDRs, there have been reviews, not to mention reviews of higher-end devices. For more information, visit Hackaday.com. West Virginia is getting a new amateur radio emergency network. Hams in the Morgan County region have formed the Morgan County Amateur Radio Emergency Service as a way of providing backup to first responders and other service organizations in times of crisis in the isolated rural area. According to an article in the Morgan Messenger, the group is expected to supplement official communications among police, firefighters, EMA units, and 911 operators. The effort is being coordinated by John Peterson, WQ0J. His group of 60 or so amateurs believe the new network will be a plus for emergency response in the eastern Panhandle County, where some communities are cut off from the mainstream by a mountain. Tyler Murphy of the Morgan County Rescue Squad told the website that emergency responders welcome the addition of the Ares group, particularly if the mainframe system fails, phones are out, and the squad's radios aren't working. The Maritime Radio Historical Society and the National Park Service 
have announced that the annual KPH Night of Nights has been canceled due to the pandemic precaution. This would have been the 21st such event, which commemorates what's believed to be the last commercial Morse radio transmission in the United States. While KPH, KFS, and K6KPH will not be on the air for the Night of Nights, 21 Maritime Radio Historical Society members will be active from home. Members will use their own call signs on the usual K6KPH frequencies of 3550, 7050, and 14.050 kHz starting at 0001 UTC on July 13th, which is the evening of July 12th in the northern time zones. They'll be sending a Night of Nights opening message, traditionally transmitted via KPH. They will then stand by for calls, or will call CQ, N-O-N, or CQ Night of Nights. Listen for WB6OVV, N6BBF, WB6UZX, AA6IF, N6AD, W6AWO, W6DHM, and possibly a few others. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Foundations of Amateur Radio. Every week I run a net for new and returning amateurs. A variety of people join in with varying degrees of skill, knowledge and number of birthdays. One of the regular things I say during that net is that if I'm not acknowledging you, it's because I cannot hear you. I then start a spiel about repeater offsets and give some examples. But what is it really and how does it work? As you might recall, a repeater is a radio generally located somewhere useful, like on a hill or tall building, that offers the ability to talk to other amateurs who are not within range of your radio. For bands like 2 meters, 70 centimeters and 23 centimeters, generally speaking contacts are line of sight. If you're standing on a hill, you can talk to more people because your line of sight is further away. This is also why you can talk to the International Space Station with a handheld, since it's in your line of sight at least some of the time. A repeater acts as a line-of-sight extender. If it can see both you and another station, it can act as a bridge between you. How it does this is pretty simple. A repeater listens to your signal and transmits that to the other station. It uses two separate frequencies to make this happen, a receive and a transmit frequency, or more precisely, an input and an output frequency. To remember which is which, you can think of a repeater as a giant megaphone. You talk into it and sound comes out. Said differently, think of a repeater as a device that takes an input from one station and makes an output for everyone to listen to. To actually use a repeater, your radio needs to be set up to transmit on the repeater input and it needs to receive on the repeater output. This means that when you transmit, the repeater can hear you and when you're listening, you can hear the repeater. To achieve this, you can set your radio up using repeater mode. It uses a thing called an offset to set the difference between the input and output frequencies. To find out what the offset is, you take the repeater input frequency and subtract the repeater output. If you set up your radio correctly, 
you're tuned and listening to the repeater output. When you hit the push to talk or PTT, you'll transmit on the input frequency, and when you let go, you're back to receiving on the output frequency. One final roadblock might be that your local repeater has a tone lock. If it does, the repeater will ignore you even if you have all the frequencies correct. This tone is generally published by the repeater owner or your local regulator. You can also check a website called repeaterbook.com to see many of the world's repeaters and their specific settings. Now I should point out that while repeater offsets are standardised, they're not the same across bands, across the world or even within a country or city. Depending on where you are, what the density of repeaters is and what band you're on, the offset number and direction will change. It's even possible that you have a variety of offsets on the same band in the same city. This means that you cannot just pick a standard offset for your radio, but most modern radios will have a method to deal with this. It's easy to get this wrong. Setting up your radio for using a repeater is deceptively simple. Three things to look out for when it's not working. You have the input and output reversed, the offset is wrong, or there is a tone blocking your transmission. I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. The only thing that worries me more than climbing to 400 feet on a July night with thunderstorms visible in the distance is climbing to 200 feet and then making a turn to the right and moving away from the tower 6 feet on a sidearm. Just the thought of making a sharp turn on a highway with no exits just doesn't seem natural, but for a climber, it's a necessary part of the job. For the safety-oriented climber, we work to minimize the risk of death. Let's be honest here. If something goes very wrong on a sidearm, one of three things will happen. Death, poopy diapers, or serious injury. Let's examine some potential truths about sidearms. For openers, if the sidearm was about to fall off the tower, it would be visibly obvious just by looking at its mounting hardware most of the time. Also, if that structure survived the past year's worth of ice storms, 90 mile an hour winds, or worse without breaking, chances are it'll support my fat butt for a short amount of time just fine too. Since tower climbers usually own lots of straps, belts, and ropes, we have the ability to choose how we want to protect ourselves when working on sidearms. Basically, we can choose to secure ourselves to the tower or if we want to secure ourselves to the sidearm at all. Depending upon the width of the tower, the design of the sidearm will vary. On a 1-2 to two foot sidearm, many times I stay below it and stay strapped to the tower. I use two or three devices and lean out away from the tower so I'm just below the antenna I'm working on. If the antenna is too heavy to handle this way, I can secure it from above or work on it from above. If the sidearm is a big 6 foot mother, I prefer to climb out onto it to get my work done. What I do is use a very light but very strong rescue strap. It's about 10 feet long and strong enough to pull a car out of a ditch, yet light enough to carry in a big pocket. I attach it with two beaners about 5 feet above the sidearm on that side of the tower. The other end of the strap goes to my belt. I slide out onto the sidearm and often never strap onto it. Depending upon the width of the sidearm and the weight of the antenna I'm working on, I may never strap onto the sidearm at all. This way, if the sidearm breaks off the tower, I'll drop to the end of the strap and stop while the sidearm can fall away. If I was strapped to the sidearm too, my strap would have to catch all of that weight, which sounds like a bad idea to me. 
Again, each installation is different. One needs to know the age of the structure and look how well maintained it is and decide how to deal with safety based on a first-hand inspection of the sidearm. There is not much in nature that would put an equivalent weight load at the end of a sidearm equal to my 160-pound body weight. So a climber needs to be very aware of the risks and safety specs of his gear, not to mention the condition of the tower. The professional climber recognizes the danger and works to minimize the risk without losing lots of time and with minimal added weight. If you want to imagine a job I don't ever want is the guy that slides down the guy wires with the bucket of grease smearing a coating from end to end. Remember, tower work at any height can easily become deadly. Money spent on books, videos, and climbing gear is well worth the investment. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. If you are into the world of DX, be listening for Loik, HB9HBY, and Greg, HB9TWU, operating as HB0 slash HB9HBY from Liechtenstein between July 24th and the 26th. They will be on the air around the clock for three days on 80 through 60 meters, including 30, 17, and 12 meters using CW and single sideband and FT8. There will be a special call sign on that Saturday, which has not yet been announced. Look for updates on Facebook or on Twitter using the call sign HB9HBY as the internet handle. A special centennial event is to take place when members of the Royal Signals Amateur Radio Society are marking their 100th anniversary with the call sign GB100RS and are on the air until the end of October on various HF bands. Listen for them using CW, Single Sideband, RIDI, and PSK. Special awards are available. QSL via the Bureau. A group of operators including Silvo S50X, Garan S52P and Hubert S53Z will be on the air as 9A followed by their call sign from the Palagruza Islands between July 18th and the 31st. Listen on 80 to 10 meters where they will be using CW and sideband. The group will use the call sign 9A20A during the RSGB IOTA contest which is July 25th and 26th. Send QSLs directly or by the Bureau to S58MU. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartMedia, and Spotify. The International Amateur Radio Union HF World Championship over the July 11th and 12th weekend offers an opportunity for operators to put their stations to the test ahead of the fall-winter contest season. Casual contesters are welcome. This Everybody Works Everybody event kicks off at 1200 UTC on Saturday, July 11th on 160, 80, 40, 20, 15, and 10 meters and continues for the next 24 hours. Despite rather dismal HF conditions recently, the competition is expected to keep the bands hopping on both phone and CW. Participants may operate either or both modes. 
Highlighting the activity will be the IARU headquarters stations and officials on the air from around the world, although, as the IARU notes, headquarters stations may not be active at typical levels. Participating stations send a signal report and ITU zone or IARU member society abbreviation. The IARU HF Championship web page includes ITU zone borders for the U.S. and Canada. It is essential that the global pandemic be taken into account, including by IARU member society headquarters station teams, the IARU said in announcing this year's event. The IARU stressed that multi-operator and IARU member society headquarters stations must adhere strictly to the regulations and social distancing guidelines in effect issued by the responsible health authorities and the World Health Organization, even if observing the guidelines is not legally required in their locations. This requirement also applies to single operator stations and especially to stations hosting guest operators. The objective of the IARU-HF World Championship is to support amateur self-training in radio communications, including improving amateur operating skills, conducting technical investigations, and intercommunicating with other amateurs around the world, especially IARU member society headquarters stations. Special rules governing IARU member society headquarters stations permit using multiple sites if national regulations permit. The headquarters list includes the ARRL. Members of the Tennessee Contest Group will operate as ARRL headquarters stations W1AW-4, while IARU headquarters stations NU1AW will be operated remotely by a team of operators using WW2DX facilities on the coast of Maine. In addition to headquarters stations, members of the IARU Administrative Council and the three IARU Regional Executive Committees will send AC, R1, R2, and R3 as appropriate. IARU President Tim Elam, VE6SH, will be active for a limited period, giving out the AC multiplier. IARU Headquarters Official Stations and ITU Zones are multipliers, which count per band, but not per mode. But contacts count per mode per band. Contacts with IARU Member Society Headquarters Stations and officials do not count as zone multipliers. Listen for this one. In Bulgaria, the Vakarel broadcast transmitter has been off the air since 2015. The antenna, erected in 1937, is 215 meters in height. During the IARU contest, the Bulgarian Federation of Radio Amateurs Headquarters Station will use the antenna on 80 meters as LZ0AA. After the contest, the antenna will be taken down. And finally this week. In his latest blog post, ICQ Podcast, presenter Dan Romanchik, KB6NU, looks at a paper produced by Rode and Schwartz, The Rebirth of HF. The paper provides a good description of HF propagation that could be of great help to any newcomer. It also notes, in order to allow HF to meet the minimum requirements for a modern global communications technology, improvement or enhancements over traditional or legacy HF are required. The first and most important of these is improved data performance. 
Although HF will never match the throughput provided by satellites, a certain minimum data rate is necessary for making HF a viable choice in modern applications. Despite the dominance of data, voice is still a critical component in a global communications system, and here too there is substantial room for improvement compared to legacy analog HF voice. Modern communication techniques enable throughput rates of up to 240 kilobytes per second in a 48 kilohertz wide HF channel. 15 frames per second color video streaming can be achieved on HF using a bandwidth of 18 or 24 kilohertz. In a test in 2011, video was streamed over a 1,700 kilometer path for 75 minutes without sync loss. In 2012, successful trials took place in the UK with 24 kHz bandwidth high-speed data and video transmission on 3.613 MHz in the 80-meter band. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters all across North America and around the world on great repeater systems like our flagship repeater, W2GBO, on 146.940 MHz, serving the Tri-Cities of New York State's Capital Region. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.